Welcome to God's Word Community Church Sermon Broadcast. The books of Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul, are so special because they show us what a truly good church looks like. We hope you enjoy the kind of meaty, spiritual food from God's Word that we offer here at GWCC. When we started... Um, our intent, and should the Lord tarry for the next 40 or 45 minutes, we will be completing First Thessalonians today. And I want to remind you why we're doing what we're doing. We originally, our first sermons at GWCC were on the book of First John, which is a, a fundamental book about how to test the actions, behaviors, attitudes of your life how do we test them to see if our life is in line with our confession of Jesus Christ? We then worked our way through the book of Galatians. And we went through Galatians because two of our members here at GWCC gave me a very, very important piece of advice. After we finished with First John, I wasn't real sure where to go next. And so the suggestion that came to me was, since we are trying to learn how to be the New Testament church, why don't we look at writings in the New Testament that would describe what the New Testament church is? It was a very important piece of advice. And, of course, the thing that it brings to mind immediately is that we say that Jesus is Lord, the Word is our authority, the New Testament church is our direction, but which New Testament church would that be? Because in Galatia, you've got a church that's lost in legalism. In Corinth, you've got a church that's lost in the flesh, in just about every expression of the flesh. In the book of Revelation, we've got a church like Thyatira, which, even though it's doing some things well, has allowed some cultic and some unwholesome sexual practices to just break out in the church without control or restraint. So obviously, looking at all these different churches, we don't see a New Testament church. We see many New Testament churches. In fact, even the models of government between them are not uniform. They don't follow the same pattern all the time. But this study that we've done in 1 Thessalonians has been very, very special to me for a couple of reasons. In strong contrast to Galatians, the Thessalonian church is a very, very, very good church. It is the kind of church that all of us would wish we could be a part of. It was a church that was noted for its faith, referring to its relationship with God, and to its practice of love, toward the people inside that church and toward the Christians that are on the outside of that church. The church had a powerful reputation for living with actions that were characterized by faithfulness and love. A third characteristic of the Thessalonian church that I would lift up after having done this study is that they were one of the most faithful churches that we can read about in the New Testament when it comes to the practice of discipleship. Now, discipleship is not an easy thing to explain because it's actually a model of education. It is a type of education. In our own time, we have a kind of education called lecture, which if you've ever gone to a university, you know what that is, where one person stands in the front and talks and you retain 17% of the information. We have kinds of education called CBT, computer-based training where a computer tracks your progress and your learning. We have performance-based training, which you can do out of books, where you proceed through a class at your own rate as you're able to complete the assignments. Discipleship is a model of education, which is an apprenticeship on a personal level. An apprenticeship where the learner is trying to learn the teacher. The teacher is the content of the course. Modern American churches don't do discipleship very much because you have to work small and the results take, by some measures, a long time to produce. If you invest yourself in discipling, say you had a church of 100 people 
After a whole year of discipling, you might not notice any difference in that church at all after a year. That's difficult for an American pastor to be willing to invest themselves heavily in something that they can't see larger results from in a year. But the funny thing is, it's what Jesus commanded us to do. And if we do what Jesus commanded us to do, it creates a transformation and a depth that as time goes on becomes much more powerful than any other kind of learning we can do. And the Thessalonians were very good at this. One of the things that I also learned by doing this work with you, because I have to tell you that looking at these letters from the point of view of planning a new church and trying to understand what the New Testament church should be has given me a different set of eyes when I look at these letters because I'm looking at it from an entirely different context than I've ever seen it before. I had never, ever, ever noticed the amount you can learn about what church leadership should look like as it's explained to us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I've never heard a leadership conference lift up 1 Thessalonians 2 as a place to learn about church leadership. And yet as we go through there and we see the attitudes, the practices, the behaviors, we can clearly see that 1 Thessalonians 2 is all about leadership. We finally, after the rest of the work that we have done in 1 Thessalonians, we finally come near the end of chapter 5. And I have to tell you that when I looked at this text, which in my Bible doesn't even take up half a page of paper. I thought, well, gee, the guys are really going to beat the Baptist to lunch today because this looks like a very, very short passage of Scripture. But, and I don't mean to fill you with dread, but when I worked on my notes, I had a hard time keeping my notes on only two single-space sides of paper. Because so much of what's here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 are these absolutely significant and complex in the performance <laughs> commands, which in the original language are only two words long. Like, pray unceasingly, is what the original text says further down in this chapter. Wow, what in the world does that mean? So, Please come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And what I want to share with you is Paul's Reader's Digest version of Christian behavior. In verses 12 through 28, you're going to see one of the most condensed pictures of how to live like a Christian that you could ever see in one place. Part of the instruction has to do with how we deal with our leaders. Part of the instruction has to do with how we deal with others. Part of the instruction has to do with how we walk with God. And in these few verses, you get this condensed in very tight statements from the Apostle. Now, as we get to verse 12, my translation reads like this. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are, strange language for us, over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem the, them highly in love because of their work. For me, the context of 1 Thessalonians 2 is very important for this text because in 1 Thessalonians 2, we saw the attitude of service from a proper Christian leader. The submission, the care, the effort, the labor that those leaders exercised as they were trying to provide guidance, inspiration, information, support for the Thessalonian church. Verse 12 is actually very interesting in the Greek when I looked for the word respect, I didn't expect what I found. The word there literally says to know those, to know them. Know those who labor among you. The word labor here has to do for the kind of work that wears you out and makes you sweat. Who labor among you, who are over you, the word literally proistima means to stand in front of. They're kind of showing the way. Know them. And 
I have admonish, but the word really is a very nurturing word who try to feed you, comfort you, fill you so that you can grow and be healthy. Know those people. And what occurred to me different in the original language than what I saw in English was that instead of it being a statement of saying, offer respect to those who are spiritual leaders of you, it was almost like, pay attention to your flock, (laughs) to your congregation, and notice those among you who fulfill this description. Know them. Recognize them. Daniel Wallace, who leads the committee to translate the NET, is a hero of mine. And I really like what they say there because it's probably the closest to this that I've seen. It says, acknowledge those. Acknowledge them. It's interesting that in Greek, the word is know. And in the NET, the word is acknowledge. You can see the word knowledge in acknowledge. And so there's a way in which Paul is encouraging us to watch those who perform like this among us and to know them, to acknowledge them, to see them, to esteem them highly in agape, love. Love that is loved on purpose because of their work. And then at 13b, And you may not be used to seeing little letters like A and B after a verse, but it is a convention sometimes. You know, these verse references weren't written by the apostles. They were written by somebody much later on. There's an old joke that happens in seminary where they say where these chapter numbers and verses came from, and somebody will say, well, there was this drunk monk on a drunk mule, and every time either of them stumbled and the pen hit the paper, that's where they put the mark. Not all of them are that bad. But some of them are. And so sometimes when we make references to passage, we'll actually say, okay, this verse, this thought runs like through the first half of 13, but then the back half of 13 seems to flow on to 14, and that's exactly what we've got here. Beginning in the second half of 13, what Paul tells us in terms of how to live, this begins the little section on how we live with others. And his very first statement is, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Notice that we have a choice to make about this. And I want you to consider that for a moment. We have a choice in whether we're going to be at peace with someone else. Someone else may not be at peace with us, but we have a choice about being at peace with someone else. A lot of religions focus on the experience of peace. You know, I cross my legs, stare at my belly button, say the word, um, and try to draw the peace down into me. The New Testament doesn't talk much about that kind of peace. The New Testament hits us with words from our Lord like, blessed are the peace, do you remember what it says? Makers. Peace is something that you have to construct. Often very difficult work to make peace. One of my favorite texts in the Scripture is in the middle of Colossians 3, where Paul encourages the congregation to love and then says, Over all these things, dress yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He gives those five characteristics about how we should deal with each other. And then he says, and I love this, let the peace of Christ rule. I love that. Because we never think of the peace of Christ ruling. And yet, that's how we're supposed to live with it. It's supposed to be in command. It's supposed to define the perimeters of our actions and our attitudes toward one another. And so, Paul specifically tells us that we're supposed to be at peace with each other. And if we don't happen to be at peace with each other, we need to do everything that we can to make that peace happen. 
We don't get to treat it as a passive thing. Peace is something that we make. So we take responsibility for it. And we urge you, brothers. Paul uses this word when he really wants to challenge the people about something that's important. Please pay attention to this. Please don't leave this task undone. He starts out with admonish the idol. There are translations that hit this as as laziness. It can also be disorderly, out of order, out of line. And once again, we have this same word here that has to do with some nourishment. So this isn't just admonishment in the sense of wagging my finger and I'm going to smack the back of your hand with a ruler if you don't straighten up, which I think sometimes is how we act. There's, also, there's a sense here of coming alongside and making sure that the person is fed spiritually in the way they need to be fed to be able to get more clearly within the lines of Christian practice. And then he says, encourage the faint-hearted. You notice how small my little sections are getting now? Maybe you're seeing what I was saying to you earlier about the text. There's so much little information here about what it means to live the Christian life. The original word here for faint-hearted is a very, very interesting word. In the original language, it is alega, which means few, psukoi, which means souls. Literally, Encourage those who are small-souled. They have small souls. You've met people, I'm sure, that see themselves as almost nothing, as making almost no difference anywhere they happen to be. Paul wants us to be the kind of followers of God, to be the kind of Christian leaders that we can see those who feel like they are invisible. That we will care and put emphasis on those that at first don't seem to matter. I know a church right now that is responding to some people that they consider kind of like small pains in their side by telling them to go away, and other people that are influential, intelligent, and give large offerings, they pursue them very, very hard to try to draw them back in. I see this in contrast to what Jesus' half-brother said, James, when he talked about not practicing partiality. The ability to see and recognize and care about the small-souled is a direct spiritual reaction against partiality. It's to care about the person with the small soul and come alongside and let them know that, number one, a gigantic price was paid for them because to God it was worth it. And second, that God has a ministry for them That God has something that the whole kingdom of heaven and the angels themselves are waiting to see move forward. And so we can't look at people with human eyes and make our valuations that way. Help the weak. Help the weak. That's that's pretty literal Except once again, we have this idea of paying attention and then helping hold them. Like if we need to help them stand, we we do that. We help them stand. And then it says, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. The old translation, the King James always renders this Greek word very, very literally. Long suffer with them all. This challenges us in terms of our attitude 
and our impatience with people that just won't pick up the pace or those who annoy us. Why are you so awkward to deal with? Or why are you so selfish? Or why are you so unwilling to get serious about your relationship with God? We have those seeds of impatience in us, don't we? We want to see people get it together. (laughs) And what Paul tells us instead is long suffer with them all. So you see, when we talk about how we love one another, in just these two verses, we have this heavy concentration of two and three word commands about how those things are played out in detail. Yes, I know I'm supposed to be patient in the Lord. But I don't often think that means with this kind of person, I need to be able to do this. With this kind of person, I need to look to see if I can provide this. With this kind of person, I don't often break it down. And yet Paul is doing us the favor of showing us what long-suffering with others looks like and how we can help them grow. Now, verse 15, I want you to see how the way this verse is written, it makes it all of our responsibility where it says see to it that none of us nobody any individual certain person anyone see to it that nobody repays evil for evil (laughs) take that away from me I might as well quit being human that's one of my favorite things I love to give back evil when somebody does evil to me. They sure deserve that one, didn't they, Lord? Vengeance is mine. (laughs) And then there's some bothersome person who always comes up and says the next three words, saith the Lord, saith the Lord. See to it that nobody repays evil for evil. That means... That if in our congregation, or rather I should say when, because right now our church is entirely focused on human beings. We haven't addressed the evangelism of any other species. As long as we have human beings in the church, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. One among us, including me, is going to respond to evil with evil. And the whole church is supposed to take responsibility to nip that, to stop it. That doesn't belong to us. It's not our province. It's not our responsibility. That's not ours. That belongs to God. See to it that no one repays anyone for evil, but always seek, search out, chase, hound how to do good to others. Isn't that interesting? It's used, this verse about seeking to do good for others is actually a word that in other places is sometimes rendered persecute because it has to do with that part of persecution that has to do with being chased. Somebody's after you. Except this time what we're after is how to figure out how to do good for somebody. Isn't that cool? Instead of being a community that is so normal, so human, so fleshly, repaying evil for evil. Instead, learn how to chase the goal of doing good for others. I want you to notice who the targets of that good are. Good to one another. The good is toward the family of faith. And then to everyone. It reminds me of that part of the Sermon on the Mount, and some of you have heard me describe this before, where Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And whenever we read that verse, we're like, how in the world do we do that? Well, check the context. Context usually helps in understanding what words mean. And if you back up, that's the place where Jesus says that his Father is the one who sends the sunshine on the just and the unjust and allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Be therefore perfect. I don't get the leap. Well, one other hint is that that word 
perfect does not mean flawless. It means complete. What is the whole picture? And what Jesus is saying is that his followers do not have the luxury of saying, these people over here and these people over here and these people over here are in my circle of love and caring. I don't really need to pay attention to those folks, those folks, or these folks. And Jesus is saying, if you really want to be children of your Father in heaven, you need to be perfect. And that means we have to draw the circle complete so that everybody ends up inside the circle. There isn't anybody that I can safely leave outside my circle of care. And so in the same way we read here, chase how to do good with one another and yes to everyone. And then we get another one of those easy verses, 16. Rejoice all the time. (laughs) All the time. Always. Always, 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 always. Now, when we look at that and we imagine how impossible that is, you've actually just given yourself a clue as to the difference between joy and what you and I in our language call happiness. Joy is something that we can do all the time or we wouldn't have been commanded it. Joy is actually something that has to do with our relationship with God and I think also our intentions to love and care about others whether they care and love us or not. Joy, and this to me is one of the most important parts of its definition, is independent of external circumstances. External circumstances do not define the limits of joy. Joy is independent of limits. Those of you who have heard me teach on this before know that I always contrast it with happiness. The word happiness, whether we recognize it or not, is a luck word. When you look back in English, you will see that we have a number of words that have the exact same root in it. Happen, perhaps. We even in Middle English used to have the expression mayhap. I don't know if it will or not, but mayhap, such and such a thing will happen. (sighs) Happiness is a luck word. Do I experience enough luck that I feel happy? Happiness is what I feel if things happen to go right. That's what happiness is. Good days, you have bad days. Some feel lucky, some don't. Thank goodness that joy is not so fragile, so without foundation. One of the best places, if you want to study about this, that you can go to is, of course, Philippians chapter 4, which describes this in greater detail. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, the apostle from prison (laughs) writes us an important description about finding and keeping your joy and how to go about doing that. Uh, One of the things he mentions there is how to deal with anxiety. Instead of being anxious, do this. Try this instead. And then he says, just as easily, pray unceasingly. Don't stop. Verse 17. My Bible says pray without ceasing, which technically in English is a three-word command. In Greek, adialeptos prosukumai is two words. And we would render it pray unceasingly. Just don't quit praying. The only way that I have been able to understand this is what I have heard called practicing the presence of God. And this is the idea that I am going to try to live with the constant awareness that God is right here next to me. That I can talk to Him freely all day long. That He is watching me all day long that I can worship Him at any moment. And I have to tell you, friends, the time that I probably did this more faithfully than any other was one of the times when I was suffering worse than any other, where I became so aware that I needed God's comfort so desperately 
that I was firing up prayers, sometimes eight or nine a day, where I would do this 45 or 60 second prayer, God, I need your comfort. I can't get real about the fact that this has actually happened. I can't, I can't accept, I, I can see myself wanting to live in denial about this, and I don't know how, move, how to move on from this. I need you to be with me. I need your comfort. I need your healing. And it's so funny, this practice of reaching out to him and praying him all through the day over and over again because I needed it taught me that I really need it all the time, even if I feel good. It's just that often as a man, I'm not as disciplined to pray when I'm feeling better. And then he says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When Paul adds all that additional language, do he get the impression that it's important? Give thanks all the time. All the time. Find what you can give God credit for and bless His name for. Friends, in my own sinfulness, there is such a massive difference. You've heard the old cliche, an attitude of gratitude. There's such a difference in my own mind and the way I look at things when I turn the channel of my mind into gratefulness. It just totally reorients my head for however long I keep it going. And there are, just like with joy, there are no limits to being able to give thanks to God. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of the heavenly lights. And when I try to make excuses... Some of you have mentioned, heard me mention the, the Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom over and over again. An amazing story about Betsy Ten Boom, who lived the presence of God in the middle of a Nazi concentration camp, died there, and her sister, through a silly clerical error, was actually released from a concentration camp run by the Nazis, which is hard to imagine. See, Betsy, for example, learned to give thanks for the fleas in the bunks that the women had to sleep in. Well, that's a very challenging idea. How do I give thanks for the fleas? Some of you have heard me say this before, but what Betsy identified for the women around her is first I want you to notice that these fleas do not care about the Nazis. I want you to see that in these fleas are an example that the Nazis do not in fact intimidate everyone and they are in fact not in control of everything. So I want you to see that right in the middle of their camp, here we have a testimony that they are not all-powerful. Second, because our bunks are full of fleas, the guards stay out of our barracks. They do not come in here and attack us as they could because they don't want our fleas. These fleas are protecting us from the guards. And so she taught women in what certainly must be the most desperate of all circumstances how to give thanks to God in all circumstances notice that he says this is the will of God this is the will of God this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you this is the will of God what well, doesn't matter what God wants you know, in some philosophical and theological circles, they refer to God as the ground of being. He is the creator. He is the foundation of everything that exists. One of the things that we can take that to mean is that when God hates something, you can expect that thing that he hates when it happens to create a distortion in reality that doesn't ever go away. I mean, for example... God famously says in Malachi chapter 2 that he hates divorce. Divorce, no matter how justified, is one of those things that creates a wound or a break or a reality that never goes away. The kids always will have to deal with the fact that there was a divorce. The parents will always have to deal with the fact that there was a divorce. There's a rupture that happens there that changes the reality. And it endures. In the same way, if we find out that something is God's will, what we're going to find out 
is that there is something of life and blessing and strengthening that happens in that thing as if the ground itself were feeding us. And so when we get this strong statement for, from Paul that giving thanks in all circumstances is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, is it possible that one of the reasons Betsy Ten Boom is such a spectacular example of real faith is because she knew how to give thanks to God? Don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't put it out. Well, how do we know the Spirit when we see it? Where does the Spirit work? There are things in the Scripture that let us know where God intentionally promises to meet with us. He meets with us in worship. He meets with us in the Word, which He calls the sword of the Spirit. He meets with us in our efforts to stay pure, righteousness. He meets with us in our service to others. Inasmuch as you've done for the least of these, my brothers, you've also done for me. He, it says in Psalm 22, inhabits the praises of his people. And so praise, sincerely given, and by that, I mean not ignoring all of the sin that I have in my life and pretending like I can be religious up here while the rest of my body is doing this over here. God doesn't like that. But when I'm congruent in giving my praise, God dwells there, makes himself present there. I want to take you for a moment to Ephesians chapter 5 and share with you a discovery that I made when I was looking for something completely different. Because when we read here, don't quench the Spirit, I think it's important for us to know how the Spirit will express Himself among us. Now, what I was trying to understand when I stumbled on this thing I'm getting ready to explain to you is I was trying to understand exactly what Paul meant when he said, ladies, you ready for this? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord? I'm trying to understand what's being said here. And so I go and I look at Ephesians 5.22 in the original language of the Greek. Now, because I studied Greek, I had to study grammar. And one of the things I learned about grammar is that there is one word you need for a sentence. One out of the eight different parts of speech, there's one word you have to have to have a sentence, and that is a verb. You can say just a verb, run, and that's considered a complete sentence. You can assume the subject. You can't assume the verb. So I look at 522 in the original language, and I find the statement, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. What? Wives to your husbands. Oh, it's a fragment. There was specifically no verb. So, okay, maybe Paul pulled it from the verse before. So, I look up in the Greek at verse 21. And what I find there is not a verb, but an ing form of what used to be a verb, which now is called a participle. And even though it has a piece of a verb in it. It cannot stand in a sentence on its own. In 21, the language says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, verse 22, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So now I'm puzzled. Where is my verb? We've got a characteristic of it. A participle is called a verbal adjective. And so in verse 21, we're describing whatever my verb is with the word submitting. I do this action and I do it one of its characteristics is submitting. So I back up from verse 21 to verse 20, still looking for my verb. And what I see in Greek is always giving thanks and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands is to the Lord. So now I've got always giving thanks and I've got submitting and I still don't have a verb. But whatever that verb is, two of the ways that you express it 
are by always giving thanks and submitting to one another. So now I'm on a quest. Where is my verb? So I back up from 20 to 19. And if you look in your Bible, you will see all the ING forms in verse 19. Speaking or addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Then always giving thanks and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands is to the Lord. So now I've got a description of all the ways I'm supposed to communicate to you. I'm supposed to speak to you with the words of the Psalms and our faith faith songs in my heart so I can build you up. And I'm supposed to give thanks and I'm supposed to submit. But those are expressions of what? I still don't know what I'm looking for. Then I back up to verse 18. There's got to be a verb in here somewhere. And Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. My verb, be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Being filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving thanks, submitting to one another, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Suddenly in Ephesians 5, I learn what the life of the Spirit is supposed to look like, how we express it, how it comes out of our daily expression. And so when Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, don't quench the Spirit, He's encouraged us not to restrain ourselves nor to restrain each other from expressing the Spirit in our lives. And we've just seen a description of what that looks like. Don't despise prophecies. When someone claims to speak a spiritual word, don't despise it right off. Don't trash it right off. But instead, test everything. This is that famous word that I've shared with you before that we also see in James chapter 1 when it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. The testing here is to stick the thing in the cooking pot. Stick it in the crucible. Put the fire under it. See what is in it. That means when somebody gives you something that they consider a prophecy or that they consider some kind of spiritual, spiritual word, it is not your job to accept those kinds of religious statements without without pondering them, without thinking through them, without testing them by the word. This is not a situation where we say, turn off your brain and use the force. You are supposed to take what you know from the word of God and you're supposed to cook it until you can see what it's made of. And then it says, abstain from every form of evil. Wow. Abstain from every form of evil. You know what my pattern is. I have things that I consider more evil than other things, so I'm really careful to avoid those things, and then other evils I make peace with and I do more frequently. You understand what I'm saying? God really is trying to grow us in the direction where we are more and more and more His. Where we are purer and purer in the sense that we are less and less mixed with the trash of this world. I don't mean in some legalistic sense, but I mean in the sense of recognizing what good and evil is. And Hebrews 5.14 lets us know that without the Word of God, we can't even tell what good and evil are. We think telling good from evil is a basic thing that anybody can do, but it's not. When we get to verse 23, Paul starts to close up this letter. And he talks about the blessing that God can give us. He says, now may the God of peace. Isn't that a beautiful expression? He uses that also in Philippians 4.9, the God of peace. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What a strange connection. God of peace, sanctification. You know, usually when I consider sanctification and how pure I am, I fret about it. (laughs) And so I take my own peace away. 
Could it be that if the God of peace is the one who is sanctifying us, that what Paul is telling us is that our spirits will be calmer and quieter and more at home in his presence the further we let him take us in purifying us? Does that make sense to you? May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This, this is a completely different word from the word I normally talk about with perfectly. This one really has to do without flaw and has to do in kind of a holistic sort of look at yourself. May he sanctify you completely. May your whole soul, spirit, body be kept blameless. Wow. Until the coming. And here's our old word that I taught you last week. The famous word for the return of Jesus Christ the victory parade of the conqueror, the parousia, or pronounced parousia. It's a technical word in those days for the way a conqueror would come back in a magnificent parade so that the conquest would be recognized and the whole population would be enthused by what had been accomplished. That's how Jesus is coming back. So may God, this God of peace, keep your whole spirit, soul, and body blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want on that day, don't we? We want our colors to be clear. We don't want God to be confused about, are you really on my side or not? We'd really like for him to have no trouble telling the difference between us and someone who doesn't care about his lordship. He who calls you is faithful. God is faithful. You can count on him to keep his word. He will do it. He can keep you blameless. He can keep you. And then as Paul closes, he says, brothers, pray for us. What kinds of things does Paul pray for? What he prays for in other sections of the scripture is that he might speak the word boldly as he should. He asks for prayers that we can see the whole love of Jesus that our faith would not fail. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. We don't do a lot of the kissing anymore. But I do think it's important to see that it is good for us to take the time to touch, to express affection for one another, to let each other know that we feel a bond toward one another that is family-like. And it's worthwhile to take a moment to express it. And then he says, how important is the word of God to the church according to the Apostle Paul? Look at what he says in verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Wow, that sounds important. I put you under oath before the Lord. I'm going to ask God when I see him next. Did they do it? (laughs) the word of god is so important it is so important and then he closes with the grace of our lord jesus be with you what does that mean grace is not how we think you and i get turned away from grace at the grand old age of four or five years old you probably don't even remember when you were last judged by grace There was a time when maybe you went to pre-K and your teacher put no numbers on your pages. She just put check marks or smiley faces or or sunshines. And that's what your grades look like. Starting at the grand old age of five or six, your teachers started putting numbers on your pages. And everything you did was quantified and measured that way. And then you went on to elementary school for the next five or six years. Everything you did had a number put on it. And then you went on to junior high or middle school, and everything you did there had a number put on it. And they warned you seriously, you better turn your stuff in well and on time or your numbers will be lower, and they won't look good for the numbers you have to do in high school. So you go to high school, and you have three or four more years of everything you do having a number put on it. And they warn you that if your numbers aren't good, you may not be able to get a high enough number on the test and get admitted to this big school where you know what they do? Give you pages and put numbers on them. And why would I hurt myself by going to a school like that? 
because someday I want to go to a place they call a job. And they're going to take a number of hours per week and multiply it by a number and give it to me on a slip of paper with numbers on it. And we even have the statement in our culture, what do you think so-and-so is worth? And that language has to do with how big their numbers are. And so I want to confess to you and invite you to experience this with me. I hardly know how to think in terms of grace. Because my culture has spent my whole life indoctrinating me out of grace. What grace is, is being unmeasured. Is being received and loved without calculation. Is being esteemed and valued and treasured without a volume or a value. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that grace comes to us through the cross. Please close with me in prayer. Father in heaven, you have given us so much in so tight a space. We look at our lives and we look at what we need to be and maybe we shake our heads and say, Lord, I'm going to need you to get here. Father, motivate us to stay in our word. Motivate us to keep growing so that we can live with these characteristics and behaviors that testify that we are yours. Please forgive us our sins as we constantly fall out of these values and help us to be more and more clearly your children with every passing day. Thank you so much for this letter of 1 Thessalonians which shows us what a good church can actually look like. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.